0: Hey crack fans! stays tacky longer than any other grip you'll find out there and if you tell your opponent what do I use on my racket I use the mega tack you're going to be attacking with that mega tack from start to finish if you've seen anything we do at crack rackets you know I'm a hairy guy as you can imagine I sweat when I play the only grip that works for me is the turna tennis grip of course the mega tack taking things to the next level how can you get yourself hooked up with a turna grip today it's simple you're going to either find it wherever you buy your tennis goods about the mega tack the tackiest grip on the market contact sales at unique and get started with our friends at turn of to tennis today welcome to hey great shot This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we're going to play catch-up from the past week of ATP and WTA Tour action. Now, we initially recorded this podcast as part of an extensive mini-break podcast, breaking down everything that's happened in the past week on the Pro Tour. Of course, that includes the off-court storylines, the big decision from Wimbledon, their choice to ban both Russian and Belgian. Russian players from the 2022 event. That's a storyline that has transcended media, broken into the mainstream media conscious, and is certainly something we will continue to discuss until that 2022 Wimbledon actually begins. But on that podcast, we also broke down what was in phenomenal past week of play on the ATP and WTA tour. Certainly anytime you have four events like we did with the action in Stuttgart, in Istanbul for the women, in Barcelona and Belgrade for the men, you're always just going to have so many options as a fan to watch, to ta- uh, learn takeaways from. But uh, certainly, again, with Carlos Alcaraz going 4-0 and his two doubleheader days, he continues to thrive. He's taken over as number one on Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, Igor Yontek has done the same, and of course, her ascension to the world number one, well-documented on this podcast over the past couple of weeks, but another definitive victory for her in a final, this time over Arena Sabalenka, who gets the much resurgent week she needs as well. All this said, again, haven't even talked about Potipova, about Rublev, about Djokovic, all these other things that happened, we covered in what was an hour-and-a-half-long podcast. Unfortunately, I recorded it without the presence of super producer Daniel Westhoff. And as such, the audio recording uh, wasn't the highest quality. So joining me today on the show to help run it all back is the man who joined me for that initial mega podcast, a man who has been far too kind with his time to us here at Crack Rackets, a man you know best as an editorial producer, contributor to Tennis.com and Tennis Channel, returning champion across our platforms here at Crack Rackets. It is our friend David Kane. David, hey, great shot welcome back to the show. I won't lie. I like to think I have cast away all shame, I feel, in doing this job. I actually felt nervous doing that Great Shot opening in front of you and to see your face throughout it. I mean, maybe listeners could hear the excitement in my voice. Nevertheless, welcome formally to the Great Shot podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Hey. Hey there great shot (laughs) i knew i knew it was coming the amount of tweets i expect anytime you retweet me from now on it's not going to be a retweet it's going to be a hey great shot i know it's coming
1: I'm really happy to have finally set aside my feud with you, Alex, and now evidently I can, I can re-channel that energy over to Westhoff because now we have to re- rehash all this stuff that we – all these gems that I let go over the weekend, but I'm, I'll try to remember them and now having the a hindsight uh, to, to influence them. I feel like I'll my, – my opinion, my takes are even better now, so I'm, I'm happy
0: to be back. <laughs> my dream for this podcast someday is I'll convince super producer Daniel Westhoff to join us for a recording, and then he chimes in, and it actually is funny – because he likes tennis, doesn't love it. But every so often now, he'll come out of his room and he'll throw a take at me. And I'm like, dude, like, are you watching? And he's like, no, I listen to all of your sh**. And like, this is what I'm picking up on. Is this true or false? Are you just making stuff up for entertainment purposes? Uh, yeah, that's fine. I'm perfectly okay with your blood food feud uh, carrying over to Daniel Westoff. I'll say this. He is the mastermind behind all of the operations. So it's, it won't last long.
1: I have to say, I have learned to become very suspicious of people when they are pitched to me as someone who, oh, but they love tennis. And then you find out, yeah name all 13 Rafa Nadal Grand Slam titles. But I'm actually maybe a bit more t- won over by someone who's just a bit ambivalent about tennis because I feel like maybe we're, we're operating from a place of honesty. So I, I, I can maybe put that feud aside as well. Yeah,
0: no, that's I, he really enjoys the technical aspect. Again, this is a dynamic I like to explore here on our Cracked Rackets podcast. For him, Love dynamics. all day, You know, listen to my voice, stare at my face and edit it do all of these different things. Then he walks out of his office, which is also his room. And I'm just sitting there on the couch like, Hey man, what's up? It's like, I have no new material. Like he knows every joke. Um, he knows all my plays, like everything. I actually will try to use like a work new stuff on him. And it will be like, nah, that doesn't work. Um, and it's very, very fun. You, again, he is the lifeblood super producer, both obviously from a technical standpoint, but he does have an Underrated influence on the content because he'll just be like, "We're not doing that." i like, "Okay, that's fine."
1: He's just in a being John Malkovich sort of movie poster existence. Yeah. He, goes, he goes to sleep counting Alex Freskins, which good, I do too.
0: No, it's it's a good comparison. I would say, I mean, I was gonna, I was watching, I was really okay this weekend. He was gone for a wedding, and all of my Indianapolis friends were also out of town. All four of them. Um, but in fairness, I'm Mr. International, Mr. Worldwide, come on. Um, that said, I ended up lying on the couch because he—we have a dog, and you know if you fall asleep on the couch with the dog, the dog's just going to attack you. But one of my favorite pastimes is napping on a couch because it's just an American pastime. And so I fell asleep with Hulu on, and I woke up and 24 was playing. And so I was going to say he's the Bill Buchanan of our operation, but I, like that reference is probably lost on the majority of people, right?
1: It's. It's. We're, this podcast has officially gotten too straight for me. I'm. Yeah. I'm lost. <laughs> lost again. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know what? Leave it all in. That's good. Or maybe we should cut that. Uh, but anyways, all of that said, I am immensely grateful for you taking the time, David, to join us once again, and we want to re. Do rehash that conversation we had talking about all the past week's action because it is worth revisiting. We are now officially ensconced in the 2022 Clay Court season. That's what we're going to be getting over the next month. And we now have seen the majority of these players play not one, but two, three, in some cases five, six matches already. And I think we can uh we can have some takeaways from the action that we've seen unfold uh, over the course of these past few weeks. And in particular, I want to start with the action we saw unfold in Stuttgart. And certainly the headline story is it's another title for Iga Svantec. And Iga, you know, you look at what she's been able to do on clay courts really since play resumed in August of 2020 during this pandemic. Iga Svantec lost three total matches on clay since August of 2020. She lost her very first match of the post-pandemic era uh, on clay to Aronk Sarus, then rips off that French Open title. She loses to Ashley Barty in Madrid last year, loses to Sakharin in the quarterfinals of Roland Garros, but 23-3 and overall in clay court matches since play uh, resumed on tour in August of 2020. We can get back to her in a second. For me, the biggest storyline coming into Stuttgart – you you all should see the laugh in the face uh, David's making to spend a full two minutes. Yeah, I set that up it's so qu- beautifully. It's quite but, a buildup. Yeah, but we're setting it aside because that's the headline. But here at Cracked Rackets, we look past the headlines. We want to get into the details. We want to make sure our listeners are the most well-informed, best-educated fans of the business. And I was very adamant and you know, we talked about this in our first iteration of this show – the biggest storyline to me coming into Stuttgart, and there were a bunch of them, Bianca Andreescu making her return, certainly, you know, how real is Pliskova making her return? Is she going to be a threat at all? Obviously, Annette Conteve, 22-match win streak on the indoor on indoor courts was something we were looking at. But to me, it was now or never for Arena Sabalenka, who last year was – one of the breakout stars of the season. And if Raducanu and Fernandez don't play that final at the U.S. Open, we would have probably spent more time the final few months talking about what ended up being a very complete season from start to finish for Sabalenka. She was probably the single most competitive player from start to finish of the season at the big events, you know, whether it was the Middle East stretch, the slams at the end of the season. She was the one making big runs and certainly Bedosa, Conteve, stole to shine at the end of the year as well. But you look at Arena Sabalenka's start to this season. There's no denying it was disappointing. And you look for her, you know, early on she goes at the uh, in Australia, losing to Kaya Yuvon, Rebecca Pedersen in uh, the first two uh, warm-up events that she plays. Then fourth round Australian Open, not bad, but loses a match to Kaia Kanepi. 7-6 uh, in the third, you know, a match you feel like at that stage of her career, given her successes from last season, she should have won. Then she struggles, you know, Middle East, second round loss to a then-struggling Petra Kvitova. Doha, she loses quarterfinals to Ika Svantec, no shame there. First round losses, Indian Wells-Miami to Paulini and Bagu, respectively. Second round loss to Anisimova, still three sets uh, in Charleston. There is no signature result in any of her play, in 2022 thus far. And coming into Stuttgart, a place where she made the finals last year before getting knocked out by Ashley Barty, but was sort of the place of her confirmation where, all right, now we're on a new surface. It's a loaded draw. She makes the final. She's clearly in the top 10 mix this year. It felt like this had to be the starting point for her season. And you look at the result now, you know, straight set loss, two and two in the final The Ega. I actually thought that match was way better than the two-and-two scoreline indicates. And, you know, again, for Sabalenka to beat Bedosa, Conteve, and Drescu en route to the final, I think this is the jumpstart she needed. I am now unwilling to write her off as a character in this 2022 WTA narrative.
1: And it sort of loses its sting to make this joke so far into your intro, but are you talking about Wimbledon favorite Arena Sabalenka or... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're going to have fun with that for the next eight weeks. But um, I mean, I would I would argue that uh, Sabalenka did have a signature results uh, so far this season before Stuttgart, but it wasn't for the right reasons. I think it was the results to start her season in Australia, just the number of double faults. So,
0: I I actually have a great number for you on those double faults, and I I swear to God, at some point in this podcast, I'm going to let you speak, and the floor (laughs) will be yours entirely uh, after this, because it's not going to be a long-winded intro, but you talk about Arena Sabalenka and those double faults. 12.6% double fault percentage, which is the highest percentage on tour, highest of her career and above her career average by over 5%. Speaks to, you know, she's only winning 42% of her second serve points. That's a career low, speaks to the struggles on serve, just. Just for the record, because I do think it's interesting, Arena Sabalenka, 158 double faults on the year. Can you guess who's second and how many they have?
1: Um, I would guess Georgie. Camilla Georgie
0: just hasn't played enough matches, nine. Uh. But in terms of double fault percentage, she is top four. So you're on the right note. It is an unexpected player. That's what I'll say to you. Someone near and dear to your heart. Dare I say she's notorious.
1: Oh, my God. Is it Pella Bidosa? Notorious
0: <laughs> PBG, second in double faults, 112. Now, she's played, I believe, 28 matches second most on the WTA Tour behind Iga. And her double fault percentage actually isn't that bad. But again, Sabaleka has 40 more double faults than the next closest person. And like, yeah, it's been pronounced struggles.
1: Yeah, I mean, with Bedosa, it's it's a, it's a fascinating contrast because first of all, they've become very good friends over the last yeah. couple of months, but also with Bedosa, the serve issues really never bother her. Certainly as much as they seem to bother me when I'm watching her <laughs> matches because the, the rhythm seems to just go in and out, but she just, you know, dusts it off and keeps going. And it's, and you don't, the serve is never really, there are no major technical hitches that are discussed when it comes to Pal Bedosa, but going back to Irina Sabalenka, I mean, it was just, a crash landing of a start to the season. And and you do go back to the U S open semifinal where had, she played just a bit cleaner tennis in that middle of the first set of her semifinal against Layla Fernandez. We may have been talking about a completely different end to that fortnight. It's great to see her finally getting back on the horse of things. I mean, this is where we're hearkening back now. I mean, I know you love your, your extended timelines, but I'm hearkening back to last year's clay swing as well when she did win Madrid and had that great win over Ash Barty after getting so close to beating her in Stuttgart, getting the the the, the revenge at the Caja Magica and really feeling like she was coming into Roland Garros as a contender for that title. And it, of course, notoriously didn't happen on a rainy, you know, rainy, heavy day to Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova in the third round. That was another one where she just got into a big hole in the third set and wasn't able to get out of it. I mean, you just. We could also
0: point out, by the way, Pavlyuchenkova goes on to
1: make the final of the freaking yeah. French Open. So like in retrospect, still not that bad of a loss. Plays out of her mind. I mean, beats Vika, yeah. a player that she had, you know, had her struggles with. Makes it and that the was of the, the final. catalyst,
0: yeah. that match against Sabalenka.
1: Definitely. I mean, I I think what was so great about the last week in Stuttgart is that it really did live up to a lot of the hype. I mean, I think we talk about Stuttgart as the Thunderdome, as every round being like a final. And we talk about that with a lot of tournaments, but it's really very much the case um, with this event this week uh, at the Porsche Tennis Grand Prix, I mean every match that Sabalenka had to play to make the final was tremendous and had to really score some phenomenal wins. This isn't a situation where someone is struggling and oh, they made a final, but it was you know they didn't really have the toughest opposition and you know conditions favored them. I think yes, the conditions certainly favored Sabalenka because they were indoors, but I you know that serve doesn't necessarily seem to be one that's con- constrained to. Favorable conditions this is something that can go in and out fairly spectacularly, but we're we're really seeing what happens when the serve is working. She is one of the best players in the world, and 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 shy of Ekishevantek, you know, one of the biggest contenders perhaps, on clay. And so I think it's really a a heartening result for her, especially since I would imagine the next six weeks are going to be a pretty big deal for her, given that it does seem unlikely she'll be able to compete on the grass, you know, up a, a you know a, a surface on which she made the semifinals at Wimbledon. That's going to be tough, but because of her power, because of her range, this is a player who could succeed on all surfaces, and this is a really big opportunity for her to make her her hay on clay.
0: Yeah, oh, well done. And, I mean, again, going back to her st- – to her results here in Stuttgart, it was not, and there are no cupcakes in the Thunderdome, but she beats Andrescu three sets in her first match of the tournament, Andrescu's second match, I think that sort of thing matters particularly when you're dealing with conditions as different in Stuttgart, indoor clay courts as they are anywhere else, and she hits her way through that match, hits her way through Annette Conteve in three sets, her weapons really being the biggest factor in her ability to convert on the first serve, you know, she wins 76% of her first serve points in that match. Her ability to win free points, winning her that match. She's down 4-1 in a first set breaker to Paula Bedosa match. She ultimately wins 7-6-6-4 and just kept swinging freely. Her backhand down the line against Iga as well was firing. And again, I know it's a 2-2 two two loss to Iga in the final, but Sabalenka had breakpoint chances in the opening ma- uh, game of the match. She came out swinging. And, you know, She goes down break point chances, first game, second set. A couple of big backhands down the line to fight off those break point chances. She ends up holding 4-1 all. Now, yeah, down the home set of the second set, she definitely went away. After that break for Svantec to take a 4-2 lead, you could tell that was just the needle in the balloon and kind of burst all the momentum that Sabalenka hadn't built. But I do think fundamentally— And you look at the numbers, first serve percentage, higher than it's been for her in her career average. She's up by 2%. First serve win percentage, it's up by 3% on her career average. The second serve and the double faults have obviously been the foundation of all of her troubles. But her break percentage is above her career average. Her returns in play are above her career average. I know it's not quite the heights of last season, but I think outside of the serve, everything for Sabalenka has been pretty good. And this week she served well in ideal condition, certainly, because it's indoors and you toss the ball up, it's going exactly where you want it to go. But if this is a sign that the serving woes are dissipating even 30%, 40%, like 25%, if she can cut down the double faults from 12.5% to 8% or 9%, like that's five more points that have been the difference in what have you know four three set losses for her this season and like even when she's serving horribly she's still playing close now we see what happens when she's making some first serves i do think from a confidence perspective yeah ego wins but
1: Sabalenka is the biggest winner coming out of the week the bedosa match is really pivotal because it yes. was a mental match bedosa has been one of the mentally toughest players of the year one just one of the toughest players to beat, just based on the the results that Paola posted that week alone, this week alone against Shabor, getting that match against Rubikina in the third set tiebreak. I mean, this is one of the really, she hasn't been playing phenomenally on clay, but she's been able to win a lot of these mental, mental matches. And that has been the biggest hurdle for Sabalenka this season. So the fact that she was able to out-gut and out-fight Bedosa in the semis is 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 really pivotal for her. And I think when you look at results against Svantec right now, she's dominant. She's running away with it. You can't take too much disappointment from Losing to the most unbeatable player right now, who is tremendously talented, really confident, but a player who can hit a wall. I mean, we saw it happen last year in Paris against Maria Sakari in the, in the quarterfinals. I think it's a slightly different perspective that players are feeling now in the wake of Ash Barty's retirement than maybe they were feeling last year, where maybe it was feeling like Barty was so dominant, Barty would come in and win these matches and no one had a chance. I think even though Schwantech is playing, arguably, you know, better, more impressive tennis than Barty ever did at her peak. I think that everyone in the top still believes that this is very much their chance to win the title. I mean, we're seeing just a rise in quality from the top 10. And that was really one of the biggest things I was complaining about heading into the uh, sunshine swing. It was just felt like it was, you know, the difference between one and 50 was, it was just, it was cavernous. (laughs) There was just nothing, nothing behind the number one. And even though uh, Svantec has carved out a really nice lead for herself. I still think that the other players behind her believe that they can at least get into these big matches and challenge Svantec if and when that letdown happens. I mean, if you're eager, you're hoping it almost happens in Madrid or Rome because you don't want it to happen again in Paris. I think that's that's what's so pivotal when we discuss Ega is that, yes, we could go back to her dominance stretching back to the end of the pandemic, but this is a very different player right now than we were even dealing with in the wake of her French Open triumph. I mean, 2021 was a solid year. It wasn't a fantastic year. Now we're just seeing her really paint the lines and play some fantastic tennis and and scrape together and uh, rather string together. (laughs) There hasn't been a ton of scraping uh, over the last couple of months for, for Iga. So I think even though she's playing really great, she's carving a really great distance for herself between her and the field. I think the field is still very much believing that they can contend with her and at least get into these matches with her, which is a big improvement from what we were seeing a couple months ago.
0: Yeah. And I want to get to the ego part momentarily. The final thought on Sabalenka, I was reminded this week, as I am every time we switch surfaces, she's a good clay court mover. And I, I continue to make the case that for Sabalenka, her first step is as powerful and as lengthy and as successful as any first step you're going to find out there. And I do think playing on clay courts you know, there's some indecisiveness for her as a mover on hard courts because you can hit behind players a little. You know, the the movement options are a little bit more varied because you have cement under you, and it's just a little bit easier to stop and change direction. You have to almost play to the open court on clay courts because of how difficult it is to cover that open court as your opponent, as the mover, because of just how it is difficult it is to recover and change direction. And I think taking that decision out of Sabalenka's mind and just her knowing hey they're going to have to play to the open court. That's where I'm moving to next. It allows her to amplify that first step that much more. And I think on clay, she's just better at anticipating as a mover. I think the heaviness of her ball is so difficult to deal with on this surface. I thought she showed some pretty good creativity at times, showing off the slice. She's always been a good volleyer. She's a doubles grand slam champion. She has been great. And again, I don't think she played poorly in her final against Iga Fiantech, who was coming off of a three-set Loss where Ludmilla Samsonova almost had her. You know, again, they're on serve deep in the third set there, and Samsonova was swinging so freely. And it was interesting to see both Sabalenka and Samsonova just identify look, we're not playing on Iga's terms. We got to swing freely. We got to go for our shots because if we try to play her game right now, she's too good. We're going to lose. And you snuck in the David kane of David Kane lines in your last answer. I wrote it down here: Shfiontek's peak
1: better than Barty. Are you already there? Oh, I was there before Barty retired. I, know you I was very are. aware that Svantec is a more naturally talented, that her best, I mean, we saw we, what she did again in Paris in 2020. I don't necessarily, yes, I guess you could say this was all an upward trend, but I think we saw her hit a very high high in 2020, come down a little bit in 2021, and now has really even bettered what she, what she posted to win her first major. So certainly, you know, at at the rate that she is going, if she doesn't win another slam this year, this would be that would be a tremendous disappointment because she's just she's pasting, you know, she's pasting it right now.
0: So first of all, hi, hi, hey, great shot. Which now you get why I say that to you during podcast, because that's the intro of this show. But um B from a mathematics perspective, you look at the numbers. What made Ashley Barty special? She's one of two players who hold serve over 80% of the time. It's her. Alex, it's she's retired. 100%. I don't know if I
1: want to talk about her anymore. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wanna, well, that was not, I'm, I'm like only half on board for the numbers as it is for a player that's no longer active. I think we can just <laughs> – well, we here,
0: well, here's what I'm saying is the hold percentage is what of Barty elite. Iga Sviantek right now, and it's laughable. Her number thus far, 2022 play, she's obviously number one in break percentage on the WTA tour. Right now, you look at, she's breaking serve 53.5% of the time. Over half of the time, she's breaking serve. That would be historically excellent. And again, 80% club, historically excellent. 50% club is like three of a kind. And so if we're... you're looking at, again, their two weaknesses. And I say that as I'm putting air quotes up, you know, Barty had broken into the top 20 in terms of break percentage for the first time in her career before she retired. And I actually still don't think we ever saw the ceiling of Ashley Barty. I do think there was more there. And she, I just think, oh, whatever, you're making a face. We don't have to do that right now. I know you don't want to. Is Ega good enough now as a server? Does she win enough free points on that first serve? Is she decisive enough with the plus-one tennis that you're saying, again, she is a more complete player already right now in 2022 than Barty was at her ceiling, which was obviously this year in Australia?
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> De- definitively yes i mean immediately yes to quote i still uh, the, take the good people I of tiktok
0: I, I take the server because the server's in control of the points and like when Barty's holding serve at the rate she does she just kills you like across surfaces she just kills you and like i think Barty's a good enough server and good enough with the plus one that she would have put Iga in difficult positions, whether it's getting Iga stretched on the forehand, return on the deuce side to open up the open court on the ad, which is like parties, Brennan, we saw her kill people doing that for three years. Um, I don't know if Iga's serve is big enough to damage what is the ever-improving Ashley Barty backhand slice. Again, we're talking about a hypothetical matchup we saw. I know.
1: I mean, we're we're talking too much present tense here. I know. Well, it's
0: really not that far removed. If Barty picked up the racket today, we could have this match at the French Open in a couple weeks. Maybe Um, a golf club. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a—I mean, look, I bet Iga can play golf, too. That would be a fun rivalry as well. Um
1: I I don't know if they're both such athletes. That would be a fascinating reality show. Make them play like every sport, make them go head to head. That's
0: what I'm saying. I mean, they'd be super. I mean, those are probably the two pound for pound most complete athletes on the WTA tour. Like uh, complete in terms of combination of feel, skill set and explosive athleticism, strength, etc. Like they have the
1: complete package. Yeah. Athleticism as it translates directly to tennis. I mean, I think Sakari yeah. would have a bit of a, a bone to pick in terms of. Well, she's in the ad-
0: conversation, too. Yeah. She hasn't she's been <laughs> crossed off. Uh, 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 she's, the, she's still
1: in the she's still in the goat debate.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that one out. Fittest player on tour. Most athletic. Very much in. But so to Iga, I mean, Again, you look at the numbers for Iga just overall on the season, they're all laughable, and obviously you look at what Iga's done from a title perspective. She wins Indian Wells, Miami, Stuttgart, back-to-back-to-back. You throw that up there with the Doha win as well. She has an over-20-match win streak, which is, you know, a top-15 sort of win streak in recent WTA memory. She's doing just about everything you see a number-one player do on their ascension I mean, we know she's there. That's not the question. It's just, what do you want to see till the French Open?
1: More of this, ideally. Yeah, I mean, sure. she's she's winning big titles. She's beating big players. To For lack it. of a better word, don't change. Shit. Yeah, I mean, I I guess maybe avoid Polona Herzog and Arashka Roos, the only two players to really like make a dent on her on clay. I mean, at this Hmm. point, I would like to see that rematch because I feel like that Iga would really write that wrong. I mean, if if she continues going at the rate that she's going at, there's going to be a fascinating story to write on Polona Herzog uh, playing a young Iga Svantec in her first WTA final and Iga going on to win. X number in a row uh, subsequent to that. I have very fond slash not fond memories waiting around for that Lugano match to finish because there was many rain delays that week. And I was, I was admittedly excited to talk to a young up and coming Igish and it did get a great interview with Polona Herzog to be fair, but I was, I think I sort of missed the early boat on that one. So I'm still a bit smarting from that one.
0: <laughs> no, that's, Again, completely fair. All right, with that in mind, we're going to play a quick game of stock up, stock down, stock hold to get through the rest of our Stuttgart takes. Yeah, this gives you a second opportunity to just be better at this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, You were excellent last time as well. All right, let's start with Ludmilla Samsonova, who – since Berlin last year, which of course was one of the more impressive runs to a title, you know Ostapenko's run on the grass as well. And you look for uh, what she was able to do uh, in Berlin last season for her to win, you know, get wins over Konya, Von Drusova, Kudermetova, Keys, Azarenka, and benchich on her way to that title. Obviously, extraordinarily impressive. You look for Ludmila uh, Ludmila Samsonova since the start of that tournament. She's 32 and 17 overall you look for her in the ranking she's up to a new career high number 26 overall still just 23 years old i mean it's stock up but how high is this stock going for you right now david
1: we went back and forth on this on our our, our never or the ghost our, our lost podcast yeah. i should say when we were comparing um samsonova to elena rabachina i was a bit by the more, way think- we're going to do the demon hour hatchinov thing again don't worry <laughs> it, it's happening. Oh, well, that's yeah. I had a whole bit on that one, which you have not heard yet and you will soon hear, but anyway, going back to see, I mean, Sam Sonoba hits me right in the fields as someone who grew up watching tennis in the mid two thousands. I mean, it's just, that sort of technique is very nostalgic for me. And I, I tend to believe there's a lot of upside to it because I think it lacks some of the hitches that maybe um, sidelined your Nicole Vitasova's is, you know, at sure. that, at that stage of, of the, of the game. But I mean, she came very close to you know, creating what would have been a very uncomfortable headline, which is that the two world number one players lose to Russian athletes who will not be able to participate in the upcoming uh, Wimbledon championships and grass court swing. It ended up happening on the men's side with uh, Rublev and Novak Djokovic. But uh, Samsonova really, really had our chances. And it really spoke to the fact that Svantek is feeling confident and is just learning how to play different kinds of matches. And this is one of maybe the tenser ones that she's played so far in her young career and was able to figure that one out. But yeah, I'm I'm big on Lyudmila.
0: Yeah, I the backhand just makes sense. Her ability to drive that ball cross court for a winner—just there's like six people who can do that with consistency. Certainly, Sabalenka is one of them. But yeah, I mean, is she an inductee? No. Can she golf whenever she'd like at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club? Of course, she has that sort of invitation. She would come chill out in the clubhouse as well. That's the sort of power she has. And to your point, there's no hitches behind it. And obviously, she's got the size as well. You know, she's top 10, a hold percentage over these last 52 weeks. And while the return, you know, while she is streaky as a returner, and the debate we had on the last show, which we don't have to do again, is her versus Elena Rabakina in terms of the power that they both sort of have, but... You know again, when you look at the ceiling, the ability to plan your terms, the ability to hit through anyone, you just can't duplicate that through effort. Some people have a ceiling on how hard they're going to be able to hit the ball. Ludmilla Samsonova's ceiling is the highest possible uh ca- caliber. And so I I am very much pro Samsonova as well. I I expect I don't want to say big things from her over the next 52 uh, or over the next couple of seasons, but I put her go check the Go check the tweets, search uh, uh, search. Sakari, Conteve, you know, all those names, At A.L. Grosk. And I had Vekic in that category. I was wrong about that. But that group of 23-, 24-year-olds, you could see a bunch of results sort of you know, accumulate, and you thought, okay, maybe one, two, three of them are going to jump through. Right now, Ludmilla Samsonova is in that category of player where, again, still 23 years old. You know, I put Von Druseva in that category as well, who's flirted around with it, but hasn't made that definitive, consistent top 15, top 10 presence. If Jill Teichman was ever healthy, like, maybe she could be in that category as well, but she's someone you just keep an eye on. There's a big group of the next wave of 22, 23, 24-year-olds who have played enough matches. The sample size is starting to add up. She's got no points to defend till the grass court season, where then she'll have a lot of points to defend. Samsonova's— And,
1: and won't be able to defend them.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, or maybe she will, in which case, then we are talking about, okay, there's the breakthrough because round of 16 last year for her at Wimbledon as well— Uh, that it's a hot it's a it's a stock to watch i think she is one of the most fascinating players over the next three months um all right let's keep going through bedosa stock hold i don't have too much to add
1: yeah i would say hold i I haven't been overwhelmed by her her tennis over the last couple weeks but i have been overwhelmed by how um mentally tough she has been over the last couple weeks some really tough uh, gritty wins maybe some disappointing losses but given the form right now i'm I'm willing to give it a pass just because we're seeing some really good fight. And that's that's the kind of energy that wins Grand Slam matches I'm not saying it's going to win the title But it's certainly something that gets you through those tough third, fourth quarterfinal rounds
0: And by the way, the end of the free ride is coming for Paula Bedosa Who won a title before the French Open last year Then has quarterfinal points to defend Everything these first three months was just gravy On top of what was obviously the spectacular back end of last season But now she's got to play defense And obviously she's world number two, well earned But I mean, if you're playing the stock game If we still did that And I'm desperate to get Ben and Jeff getting that website going again. That's one of my summer projects where you buy stock in the players and as the ranking goes and the results, etc., you get value for X amount of stock. It's a very fun theoretical game for us all to be a part of. I mean, her, her stock, it's hard for it to go much higher. And so that's just an interesting one to watch with all of the results coming up. It's not funny, but I don't know why I'm so entertained by the idea of you getting overwhelmed by her effort. You're just like, it was so exceptional. Like, just like, again, just the imagery I, of that.
1: Yeah. I just think for someone who struggled with mental toughness, with anxiety, sure. with depression to then be so nails in a lot of these matches. I mean, it's, it's a little surprising. I have to be honest. I mean, yeah. like you, you see her drop these sets to Claire Liu and, and, and uh, this week against Rebecca, Rebecca and on Shabor, where she goes down five Oh, in the second set, you know, sort of someone who'd, you know, Jabor has managed to have her way with a lot of players after going up 5-0 in a set. And the fact that Jabor was able to reel that back in and play a lot of really solid matches against players that she's especially close to on tour, whether it's, that's Marta Kostyuk in Australia, on Jabor here, and in Indian Wells last fall, that she's been able to really set aside these really strong friendships that she's developed over the last couple of years uh, as a ITF, now WTA player, and um, and play some really solid tennis when it matters most, most. And I will bump on the idea that she has more I do think she has some points to potentially pick up still in Rome, potentially at Roland Garros, and a few opportunities in the summer when it comes to Canada, US Open. I mean, there are some points left on the table, and obviously she still has those um, WTA finals, semifinals points, which are going to come in tremendous handy over the next four or five months. will keep her ranking a bit afloat, so it does afford her some opportunities to underperform, but hopefully we don't see that. Yeah, I
0: agree. All right, let's go through the quarterfinal. And by the way, Bedosa is 7-6 in the third over Rabakina early on in the event. I mean, that's a very nice win as well. Another stockhold, I imagine, Owen Jabour, who knocked down the quarterfinals, as you mentioned, three sets by Bedosa. I mean, I think she looks pretty good and she's got some serious points to defend coming up as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was someone who was like super injured at the end of last year. And I was wondering how much of all that tennis from 2021 had caught up from her. And playing solid tennis. I don't know if it's going to be that top 10 tennis, but we haven't really seen a lot of pushback from that 11 to 15 to knock her out of that top 10, but she's been doing just enough. And again, played a good match against Bedosa. So yeah, I would hold. Raducanu? I would have said, I would have said bye, but given the the news about uh, the split with Torben Beltz, I'm I'm leaning towards a hold to a sell. I feel like that's Mm -hmm. not a great, you know, development. Granted, that decision could have been made during Stuttgart and she has a good week and then announces it after the fact, but I don't, I hate Uh, hearing that someone has a good week and then splits with their coach. I mean, I think something that has been so necessary for team Raticano has been stability and consistency. And now coming into French open Wimbledon without a coach, not great. I stand by that. I I said that last fall, I'm saying it again because I think this is someone who is still very new to the tour and needs sort of a guiding hand and experience. And hopefully she gets that now from the LTA, but you know, yeah. Got to we got we got to find something here. No, this is, this it, I is mean lot.
0: it was impossible to not be entertained by the idea of her making a top ten push this year because no French Open points to defend, nothing from the first no half points. of the season. Okay. Yeah, and so look, that's probably out of the cards now. But you're looking for the stability, and again, quarterfinal result for her uh, from a tennis perspective. Stock up. You're right, Great week. Her, yeah, with the off court news, probably stock hold, not a sell. I would say it's a hold because from a tennis perspective, last week was definitely a good week for Raducanu. I'll hold. I know you're selling Contave stock. And, and from by the way, tactically, that would make sense because it's hard for her stock to get much higher than it was at the end of last year.
1: I mean to lose her indoor streak. I mean, that's just sort of insult to injury here. I mean, that's it's like
0: a bad fourth tough. quarter fourth quarter, you know, revenue report.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just waiting for the big results. I'm waiting for the, I mean, this again, here's Madrid. Here's another chance. I mean, she's got like a million and one chances to, to do. I mean, talk about somebody who, you know, has all these opportunities before the points come off. She's someone who has the entire year pretty much to, to make, to make a push, you know, as a top 10, top 12 player. I mean, I don't think there, there's not much coming off a ranking, but until after the U S open. So, I mean, this is, it's all gravy still, but I I, I want to see it. She's capable of doing it. She's talented. She did a lot last fall, but I, I want to see it at a big tournament. And we're running out of time a little bit, but yeah, fair. Laura Sigmund, any strong thoughts? I mean, Stuttgart is over. So I would <laughs> say, <laughs> I, right. I would say, hold to sell.
0: Well, then with that in mind, let's move over to the ATP side. Let's start out in Barcelona. I mean, I don't. I don't know if there's any stock left to buy. No one's selling their stock right now in Carlos Alcaraz. It's buy, 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 as get in now while you can, is obviously Alcaraz now your number one overall player in tennis abstract's ELO ratings. That's a testament to the success the eighteen year old Spaniard has had of late. And obviously you look for him to have to play double headers twice over the course of the week in Barcelona and for him to ultimately earn three set victories over Stefano Tsitsipas, three sets over. Alex Minaur, then a three and two win the same day over Pablo Correo Busta, who, to his credit, had a pretty physical three set match with the Di- uh, straight set match with Diego Schwartzman the round before. I mean, what's left to say about Carlito? Like, he is that good, not crossed off.
1: I mean, what struck me was there was a side by side of the picture of uh, Alcaraz with Correo Busta's uh, Olympic medal from, mm-hmm. I don't know, 20 minutes ago and then <laughs> yeah. him side by side and the final, he looks like a completely different person. I mean, talk about the physical uh-huh. improvements that he made in a very short period of time, which is insane. But I think, you know, it, it was very kind of him to give us a week off in Monte Carlo from a lot of the hype. And he just, you know, <laughs> kicked it right back into high gear with with how he performed this past week, you know, getting the better of uh, Stefano and, and and winning another big title. I mean, this is, I mean, is here, uh, if the French Open were tomorrow, is he your number one pick to win it?
0: I mean, wow. It would depend on the draw. It's him or pass probably, and he's beaten so Sitsipas yeah. in three sets. So here's the thing. It is the best rivalry right now in men's tennis, Tsitsipas versus Alcaraz, and it is the next-gen 2.0 versus the next-gen, and that, you know, again, that window for—we talk about the lost generation, Dimitrov, Rejnic, all those guys, obviously the window for them feels pretty shut on, one, you know, Kareno Busta, Schwartzman, the best of the rest. They're probably not winning a Grand Slam as a cohort. Medvedev's got one. I still think Tsitsipas, Zverev get there, but man— Sinner, Alcaraz. I mean Felix is kind of that bridge in between the two generations where he's just been around for so long that you don't feel he's quite as fresh as a Sinner or as an Alcaraz is. It's funny. Felix was ally, I seem younger than Sebastian Korda. Um I mean Alcaraz... Yes. The answer is yes. I would pick him to win the championship. I think everyone would. You look right now at betting odds. He's the third favorite. It goes Rafa. goes Novak, who we learned, by the way, confirmation he will be allowed to play the French Open as they're going to allow unvaccinated players to play the event. So he's in the field and we'll get to him in a little bit. I mean, yeah, like the, the combination of how heavy he hits the ball, how well he moves, how well he hits the drop shot to cheat you know to capitalize on players who try to cheat six feet behind the baseline to try to deal with the freaking heaviness of his forehand he's an exceptional volleyer he's up to 13th in hold percentage on the season he's second in break percentage breaking serve 34.8 percent of the time which by the way is better than a prime Nadal better than a prime Djokovic now can he sustain it for a full season we'll see but again the kid's 18 freaking years old like Would I like him to have a better haircut? Sure. That's it. That's the only criticism. Like, that is the only criticism you can have of Carlos Alcaraz right now, who just, after he drops the first set to Demon Hour, who played so well this week, and we'll get to Demon Hour in a second, I promise. Um... After he drops that first set, like, you could understand him going away. You could understand, I already beat Paz this week. This is going to be a chaotic day. You know, I was down a break to Demon Hour. I broke him for five-all, but then he breaks me right away. But then I break, you know, again, have my chance for six-all. And I'm down match points to freaking Demon Hour. match point. I
1: mean, that's a stained glass
0: window. Yeah, Yeah. 40-15 down. Hits this ridiculous on-the-run, inside-in, like, inside-hip, last-second swing, forehand, that... P- gets past Demon Hour for a passing shot. Wins the 40 30 point, by the way, as well, which no one seems to want to talk about. Um, you know, which it's just, like just as impressive. You do something magical, you have to follow it up. It's like he did follow it up. Um, people
1: want. People need to talk about this.
0: Well, exactly. It's just like, are we gonna? It's just like, oh, did you see the match point he fought off? I was like, did you see the second match point? It's like he fought off two, two, and the energy after winning that second set tiebreak and getting the way he gets the crowd engaged. It's not manufactured bullshit it's it's like some people got it and some people don't and he's got it like he understands. sorry i've been watching big brother canada so you heard the don't in my accent there it, that's another west off thing um but yeah it's it's i'm not gonna say it's a guilty pleasure because the real guilty pleasure for me is getting the opportunity to hang out with west because he's like hey do you want to and i'm like i'm in because i'm like i never want to ask you so if you say you i'm in um anyways yeah we're really getting into this here um It's just so real. Like, the guy was meant to be on this court in these moments, in these stages. It's not manufactured. The way Sinner now tries to engage the crowd, that's a direct response to what happened to him against Tiafo in Vienna. He learned, oh, I need the crowd on my side. I'm never letting this happen to me again. For Carlos Alcaraz, the athleticism, the exceptionalness of what he does, just ultimately leads to the crowd being engaged, and he knows how to embrace it and milk it for all it's worth, and that's superstardom. That's the next level.
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, he's he, he right now. He's my number one pick to so win the French Open, certainly ahead of Djokovic because I think, but for, if for no other reason, the fact that Alcaraz has proven he can string together quite a few wins in a row without getting tired. And also, is still, I, you yeah. mentioned, is this the
0: first time Novak Djokovic is not the most, like, is this the first time in 15 years he's not the most fit player on the ATP Tour?
1: Um... I mean, he's had some, some injury injuries. injuries don't yeah. count.
0: I'm talking about when we have a healthy Djokovic, he is not the fittest player on the ATP tours. This is the first time we have said that since 2009, uh, since he gave up gluten.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, cause a that's decade. all we would ever talk about is that that fitness is the, st- the stamina, the durability. I mean, yeah. When, when it didn't show up, it was a huge shock. We just, it, we came to expect it. So yes, I would say he was probably the fittest of the big three through their, their peak <laughs> Do you know continued what I- peak. Do you know what I get to ask you again? What? 48
0: hours of your life. Final 48. Oh, Do you give God. it up for the Carlos Alcaraz drop shot? No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> for, for, his,
0: for his physical ability to physically transform the way he did in three months, to have that skill, would you give up 48 hours?
1: Yes, yeah, I, I would I... give up a lot to look like Carlos Alcaraz. Yes, I would absolutely. I mean, who needs a drop shot when you can look like him? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Would we'll take whatever. Take all my money. Yes.
0: Did you see ten-year-old younger Alcaraz's forehand? Did you see that video around the Twitter sphere?
1: I said, yeah, tired, tired Big Three, wired Alcaraz family. I mean, oh, just.
0: I'm. I mean. Yeah, it's like I'm already doing the brother power rankings and I moved down the Serendolos' spot and I already have the Alcarezes ahead of them. Ouch. Like, yeah, I'm sorry, like, to Obviously, like, all due respect, Francisco, Miami semifinals. and Yeah, I know.
1: Miami's over. Miami's in the Riviera. Yeah, room. and it's
0: like they also, by the way, have themselves a – Juan Manuel has himself an ATP title. So it's like they collectively they're already both top 100 on the path. But, like – no, nah, I'll take the Alcarazes, and it's like Brian's better hold on to that spot quick, like better enjoy it while it lasts. Um, yeah, his forehand's ridiculous. No, I'm just I'm just joking around. By the way, we're not putting pressure on a ten year old
1: kid, but we. It's also not, I am I'm pressuring. I, I yeah, want to see three slams by the, the time he turns nineteen. yeah, me exactly. Me too. Take right, that one out of context. Here's the question <laughs> crossed
0: off of the Go conversation. Or are still in it. Oh, no. no. He's he's still in it. A hundred percent agree. I, both
1: Alcaraz's are in the GOAT conversation.
0: That video yeah. is entrance into the GOAT conversation. That was literally his first submission. So in the GOAT, I like to think I will be the auditor of all files in the GOAT room. We have now opened a file on young Alcaraz. And the file is open. And that video is his first submission. And it's not closed yet. It's not closed. And what's the kid's name, Davidov, or the kid who can hit the double forehands. Oh,
1: Davidov, I think?
0: Yeah, Yeah, something like that. Also have a file open. No, it's not, you know, again, I'm just saying the file is open. That's all we're saying here. Uh,
1: (laughs) Anyways...
0: I, I feel like this would be the perfect like back room in Newport. If the Hall of Fame is ever flush with cash, pay me to just sit in that back room of Newport and monitor things like this, and I'll keep a constant scoreboard going in the Tennis Hall of Fame, like constant live update. Here's where the goat conversation stands, not crossed off. These are the things I could do as a historian. I just want a Hall of Fame vote. That's all. It's like. like- that's on on the list do you have a hall of fame vote we've talked about this before no right or you did i
1: think i i think i did and then i my my invite got lost in the mail the last couple of years but yes i think i did vote once i'm sure you
0: could find it again if you looked hard enough in the mail it's hard to get mail to long island um i don't don't know what i gotta do yeah exactly you guys just got a cheesecake factory like don't get crazy what would you rather have mail or cheesecake
1: Mail or I'm cheesecake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who
0: needs mail? That's what emails for. Um, I agree with you. Um, all right. With that said, let's continue. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, Barcelona again. Carlos Alcaraz, just absolute money uh, uh, in the home stretch again. Carino Busta played a physical match against Schwartzman. It was Alcaraz who played the three-setter. And like Alcaraz, and part of this, it helps to be 18. He was so fresh in that second match. And again, his ability to turn defense into offense, his ability to impose his will. The drop shot is not a phase. It's not a fling. That is a part of his arsenal and a critical weapon on these clay courts as well. He finds angles. I mean, I think we've put that part of the conversation to bed. Here's my next question here for Barcelona and the finalists: Karina Busta, who ultimately again knocked off three and two by Alcaraz in that final, but Karina Busta a three and four win over Diego Schwartzman in the semifinals. Alcaraz the three set win over Hour in the semifinals. Who's your second most impressive player coming out of Barcelona?
1: Who, <sighs> um.
0: The answer's demon, but I'll let you have your answer. I here. was
1: gonna say I, my instinct would be to say Karina Busta, but there's something about him and the fact that it doesn't—it seemed like a very stereotypical PCB result. He got sure. two really good, good strong wins, and then does not win the title. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of his big career results came from beating, you know, Novak Djokovic at, at the Olympics, which has been like his his white whale. So I think that's, yeah, I think. I mean I'm almost inclined to say Schwartzman. I like the fact that he's playing really well this at this point in the clay swing and you know, he took momentum from the uh, the the golden swing and is starting to play well here. He's a former French Open semifinalist and I always find him naturally impressive. So he's he might be my second favorite.
0: Rank these as acronyms for drugs. PCB, PBG, RBA, and FAA. Which of those do you most want to take?
1: I think PCB. I think
0: I RBA sounds, sounds a little too much. I agree. Yeah. Like, RBA sounds crazy. I mean, the FAA is already occupied. Um, I mean,
1: RBA sounds like a cult. It's yeah. Like RB- <laughs> Have you heard about RBA?
0: <laughs> PBG is also, like, was on the Supreme Court. So that's the problem, is that's, like, forever associated with me with Notorious. I agree. I think the correct answer is PCB in that respect. Um, I think my most impressive performer is ADM, who does not go by that, Alex Diemenauer, who – looked excellent against Alcaraz. He was able to take the Alcaraz inside-out forehand as an up-the-line backhand and be aggressive with it and just say, thank you for the topspin. I'm playing line-drive tennis. In a way, I just haven't seen him ever be comfortable doing that on a clay court before. And, you know, he's not as good of a mover on clay as he is on hard courts because, he, you know, it's a little harder for him to slide. He's a guy who slides out of shots, not slides into them, which is the difference between good and great movement on clay courts. As listeners have heard me say before, at the same time, He's still an excellent mover. Like, he may not be the elite of the elite. He's still excellent at it. And watching his forehand on the run, which you just never know what he's going to do with It's that much more dangerous and potent when it's that much more difficult to recover or change direction like it is on a clay court. I thought he returned serve really well. I think he's always been a... He So Rafa being underrated as a volleyer is one of the stupidest tropes. Like Gil and I always make fun of it. That's one of our people don't talk enough about Rafa as a volleyer. That was like the crux of the joke is like that anyone ever says that now anymore. It's like, no, you're wrong. Um, everyone talks about how good Rafa is as a volleyer. But where that was where it initially started out is where Alex Diemenauer is now. Like People actually don't talk enough about how good he is as a volleyer. I think he's excellent with the first volley. I think he uses his explosiveness so well at the net – this was the most complete performance I've seen from him. And you look for his run, again, on the way to uh, the semifinals. Gets a good three-set win over Cam Norrie. Obviously gets the default from Lloyd Harris, but a three-set win over Ugo Ember in his first match as well. He's matched his 2021 clay court win total. Big week for the Demon, who, again, nothing really to defend until grass court season begins.
1: I mean, you could look at that match point that he got against Carlos Alcaraz, and obviously you can look at how impressive yeah. it was that Alcaraz was able to get that winner. However, you can also look at it from the other perspective, which is the fact that not only did Diemenauer have, have two match points against Alcaraz, he had a wide open put away. I mean, it was very much the freeze frame. Yep, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I ended up in this situation. I mean, he really should have put that, that ball away, even though Alcaraz had to put up something Completely inhuman to put it away, uh, to to get it back and, and win that point. I mean, I still think that's that's a tough one. And the fact that he wasn't able to sort of mentally recover when that next point, you know, it's there's still, you know, there's a, there's a line there, there's a ceiling with Diminor, and I so I would pose the question back to you: Do you feel like people talk? Do people not talk enough about Alex diminar
0: Yes, in general. And you know my thoughts on this. We can get into this now. If one of these times when college season is over and it's the summer months and we're all talking about all these different things, I'm going to do a podcast on both Alex Diemenauer and Karen Hatchinoff, who are two of the fascinating players to me of this next-gen generation. And Shapo and Diemenauer are always the interesting ones because they're born in 1999, and so we don't quite associate them with the next-gen of (laughs) Medvedev, Tsitsipas. Yeah, you should see David's reaction. There, of Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Zverev, but they're also clearly not the sinner, you know, they're not 21st century babies, they're not sinner, they're not Alcaraz, not even Felix Ogier-Aliassim, they're those tweeners. <laughs> Demon, yeah, again, Shapo's probably- That's a good this, one. Thank you, you know. <laughs> the tweeners. Yeah, the tweeners is that going to be a tennis channel? Can we do, should I write that for tennis.com? Should I sell it out? The tweeners. And that can be the series. I feel like get, I could pitch I, it. Yeah. Yeah. Get me in the room. Get me in the room for the pitch. There, the tweeners. <laughs> that's what I do best. Um, and then you can write it, but let me pitch it. Uh, but <laughs> oh, that's
1: called delegating. Yeah.
0: Uh, Editor in chief here at crack rackets. Uh, I've retired the fingers. Um, but no, I think that's not true by the way, future employers. I can still write with the best of them. Um, I'm not confident or cocky. Anyways, this uh, like Demon Hour is a one who I still don't know what to make of him because you feel like he should make the quarterfinals of the Australian and US Open if healthy every year for the prime of his career, right? The physicality he brings, the speed he brings, just the ability to turn defense into offense, the fact that he is an underrated volleyer, all of these different things he can do and yet He doesn't have the size. He doesn't have that overwhelming thing. As good as plans B, C, D, and E are for him, what's plan A? What's the thing that's going to help him win easy points to just make his life a little bit easier so that in the seven matches you have to win to win a Grand Slam tournament, six of them aren't marathons, right? Two of them are just straight set blitzes. And, you know, that's an issue for him right now. For Hatchnov, who we don't have to talk about right now, it's the opposite. It's like all of the tools are there. And if you catch him on the right day, you see the serve, you see the forehand, you see the size, you honestly see the backhand as well. The physicality, he brings in a 3 out of 5 set match, and you're just like, this guy has it. And yet neither of those guys are considered top-tier prospects, right? Not guys we'd consider in the Grand Slam conversation over the next decade. At, with that in mind, how many career clay court matches do you think Alex Diemenauer has played? at the atp level
1: it's not something i have ever thought of so i would feel i would be remiss in giving an answer well here's the thing.
0: i will tell you this he's 20 now 23 years old doesn't help Um, um, (laughs) let me say i'll I'll
1: say 40 okay am i close
0: you are very close the answer is 28 so the so he's played No, I'm saying you're in the ballpark. Eh, close to he's, 30, played, I guess, yeah. he's played fewer than 30 matches in his career on clay at the ATP level. Okay. That's really not that big of a sample size, is what I'm trying to say. And so that's why, like, you look for him on the grass courts in his career where he's had more success. He's played 21 total matches at the ATP level. This is where the pandemic, you just have to remember for this group of guys in particular, like it's a whole season of natural surface tennis wiped away. And yeah. we are still processing the data on all of these players. This was maybe the most significant data point we've had for Alex Diemenauer on Play to Date is that to your point, match points up on David Cain's favorite to win the 2022 French Open men's singles title in a Rafa and djokovic list world, Carlos Alcaraz. Like that's significant. That's the first time I've seen it and where I go, oh, because I think last year he lost to like – was it not – who's the Italian who made the semi – Chechenato. Um, he lost to Chechenato in like a, a, a sloppy match. That
1: should not happen this year
0: if we see this demon in Roland Garros.
1: I mean, you know who did win the match point against Carlos Acarrez, Seppi Corda. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Just saying. Who, by the way, has a fascinating section in Munich this week? Um, as I think he's in that top quarter, um, and I think he's got Roussevori first. And like, Emil Rusevori is one of those guys I'm very much in favor of. All right, let's go through the rest. I mean, I think we agree. Is is on the clay courts, or at least this time of the year? PCB Pablo Carino boosted the best of the rest of the lost generation who's most is he the guy you take to you know how they do the lamp the last American male player in the draw is he the lamp of the lost generation other than he's not American he's the last of the lost generation the LLG
1: he's like the only one left right I yeah mean, Schwartzman within, RBA Schwartz- oh. sort of Oh, I mean, I go back to that French Open semifinal. I feel like that—that's yeah. that's big for for Dieguito and the fact that he's he's playing well. And you know, I know he's...
0: people have blocked out the twenty twenty U.S. Open, but like Crano Busta should have beaten Zverev too. Like that was how he didn't make a big run there, and he, that was his silver platter.
1: Yeah, and that's maybe that's why <laughs> maybe yeah. that's why we're not making maybe that's why we're not picking him as the best of the rest right now.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I mean, again, I don't th- do any of them get to the quarterfinals.
1: Um, of of what? Schwartzman, Kareno Busta,
0: Dimitrov.
1: Dimitrov. Uh, yeah. Mm, I mean, I think we would all like to see Dimitrov make the quarterfinals. I mean, I think there's just so much goodwill, and he seems like he's in a good headspace and had as good a shot as that. Huh?
0: I'm we? not anti-Dimitrov. I'm just like, I don't need to see it. Like, I actually... I, mean, I
1: would I, say he's a, I'm not speaking necessarily for the two of us, but I'm saying overall, I would say he is a sentimental favorite. I think, who, he, like, I think who's
0: more beloved him or Diego. Cause I think amongst the players, it's probably Schwartzman.
1: Yes. I think among the players, people prefer Schwartzman, but I think among fans, most fans, I think they would say Dimitrov. And I think that would be, and especially in the context of where we find the current men's tennis landscape, which we find it to be quite angry and aggressive i think you know <laughs> dimitrov brings that sort of that fun himbo energy that him and kina <laughs> are really just like bringing in spades so i think people are he's just i mean he had such a heartwarming interview when he won his quarterfinal against mm-hmm. it was the seven six and the third against a player you're who, talking about Karina busta was it against Karina busta
0: oh uh, who are you talking about here no. sportsman
1: when Dimitrov made the oh. semis in Monte Carlo, he beat somebody. It was like a tough match to make the semis. And I, I watched his on court interview and he was But he was anyways, feeling...
0: go on. Yes. I will yeah. look this up for you.
1: Yeah. He beat
0: You will beat Hercas. Yes. Hercas.
1: Yeah. And that, that was a great week. He beat Rude and Hercas back to back and it was just like just seemed in a good headspace. I think that I would certainly would be nice to see him do that. You know, that kind of round out his sort of um because I don't think he's really had much like a standout French open results that I can remember. Obviously the U S open and Wimbledon stick out greater to me. Yes. He's never, it's the only one he's never made the quarterfinals at and he made the fourth round in 2020. So yeah, I think who is most likely, I feel like Carino Busta does tend to find himself. Like if you're asking me to just to handicap, who is most likely to be in a grand slam quarter final, probably Carino Busta probably requires the least amount of oomph and energy. I don't know if he can make it beyond that, but I think if you showed me the draw and Carino Busta was just in Bracket as having made the quarterfinals, it would be the least shot. I would be like, Yeah, that's logical, as opposed to maybe seeing Dimitrov or Schwartzman being like, Oh wow, they must have played really great. So, you
0: know what I mean? So, just fun fact because Dimitrov won 62% of his career hardcourt matches, 59% of his clay court matches. He's like, Not that bad on clay courts. He's better than the perception of him, in my opinion, uh, seems to be. Total points one, which is a stat offered, you know, total points one per match. The percentage of ma- of points you win in any match you play. Can you guess what the difference is for Dimitrov between hard courts and clay courts? Just the percentage gap between how much he wins on hard courts versus clay.
1: Oh gosh, um, fifteen hmm. point one
0: percent, point one percent really? difference. He is uh. like
1: it's literally, now how
0: the cat is skinned, scunned skinned in, oh, in the points on the one. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like he actually it's very different. Like the break percentage jumps up, the hold percentage jumps down. He's a different player on the surface, but the end result is point 0.1% different. Like that's what I'm trying to say. Is I really don't think he's that different of a player on the clay court. This is such an irrelevant argument. Let's the, go. This back. is
1: why we we need a cracked rackets soundboard because we could use that clip from the Real Housewives of Atlanta in which Candy Burris <laughs> yells at Portia Williams. You just made that up because that's <laughs> often how I feel when Alex brings up a stat completely cool. out of the blue, especially when like points one, which the that's fun- a rough one.
0: <laughs> the funniest tweet I've ever that's not true but it's a top 5 in my encounter. Jeff Sackman goes, there was a big dip in our tennis abstract user rate over the pa you uh, like over the past 24 hours. At Alex Gruskin must be eating thanksgiving dinner. Like that was his big reasoning and I was like you're not wrong. That's what I was doing. Um and so yeah, I mean you spend enough time on the stat leaderboard all day those sorts of things click but yeah, the point being that's a great argument. We'll go back to 2017 and we'll publish it in that podcast because it would be perfect for there. Any other thoughts from Barcelona? Are you ready to move on? I'm ready to move on. All right. <laughs> Floor is yours. Istanbul, Potapova <sighs> title. Take it away, David.
1: I mean – <laughs> it's always an interesting place to be as a longtime viewer of Anastasia Potapova. I've been watching her since she won junior Wimbledon, which is you know sort of portentous given the fact that she probably won't be there. Um, but I've been talking to her since she was a junior. And I've always believed this talent was in her. This um, potential was in her. She came so close to winning her first title four years ago at the Moscow River Cup. It was the first all 2000s born final. She lost to then lucky loser Olga Danilovich. And certainly Potapova has gone on to be the more consistent top 100 player, although really most of her results have paled in comparison to her colleagues such as Anisimova and yostromska those close um, junior cohort uh, that she has competed against and, and largely loomed over when they were juniors. So, I mean, it's it's a tough space to be in because on one hand she played a phenomenal 250. She beat a lot of really impressive players, beat Sara Tormo beat Yuli Putintseva, and beat Dubai finalist Kuda Mertova quite handily to win her first title of her career. But at the same time as someone who knows and really likes Potapova, that could be the last clay court match she wins because she can be that streaky and the focus can really just go off. I mean, this is the kind of tennis that I was expecting from her last summer when she paired up with Igor Andreev. It felt like a really logical coaching arrangement after splitting with Ian Hughes for, after so many years, fellow Russian, it just seemed like sort of a, a, a click, a natural mm-hmm. click, but then doesn't really win a lot of matches after that, you know, Luke retires to Coco golf I think down five Oh in Canada and just never looked the same for the rest of the year after starting so great in Australia, making the third round and pushing Serena Williams to, two really tough sets. Um, I think a lot of people were looking at that as potentially even upset based on the way that Potapova began that tournament. Um, but all that said, I mean, it, it's it's a great way for her to win her first title because, it, yes, it was a 250, but it was against some really quality opposition. It gets her back in the top 100 and, you know, for Russian and Belarusian players, all the points that they can win right now is is really they must really appreciate because they don't know what the situation is going to be in the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, hasn't been the best last 52 weeks for Podpova. She's 26 and 22 overall, had a rough streak where she lost seven of nine matches uh, earlier this season. And yeah, sounds I mean, right. Yeah. And again, you know, you look at who the losses were to in a vacuum to lose to a Georgie, a Sakharia, a Svitolina doesn't sound particularly poor, but. You know, just you kept waiting for Potapova, who finished last season very strongly, and you know qualifies in Montreal and quarterfinals for her in Birmingham and was you know round of sixteen in Ostrova, quarterfinals Nur Sultan. You just felt like there was some momentum building for Potapova, who. Very quietly, by the way, still just 21 years old. Like, it's not – she is one of those many – of the many rising talents, and yet some of the others in the – you know, as the Tossens and the Lees have made these massive breakthroughs, Potapova still had to flirt with the 100K, 125K range while also playing these WTA Tour-level events. If you catch her on the right day, you're going to watch the backhand, and you're just going to be like, yep, you should be in the top 100. Like, why aren't you there more frequently? You catch her on the wrong day, though – It's still, in like, I really like her plan A. It's B, C, D, and E, where it's just like, what are the other gears?
1: I mean, she's that player where a lot of the ex-juniors will talk about the difference between the junior level and the pro level that you can't switch on and off for multiple games. And you have to really just be focused from start to finish. And it, it was never something that I really saw illustrated so strikingly as in Potopova matches because it could come and go points, sets, games, she can win, you know, eight points in a row and then lose the next four games. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's so difficult. And I wonder if there's something that could be done mentally, you know, just kind of like address those issues. Cause I wonder if there's something deeper to it or if it really is just the focus is not, you know, is never going to be what it should be, but, you know, technically, you know, it could be a bit, it could also be a bit hitchy with the forehand side the serve can sometimes abandon her side Yeah, but that backhand is really, it's, it's where it's at. So I think, Hopefully she takes a lot of confidence from this and is a player that can succeed on all surfaces, as we've seen Australia. Uh, Clay Grass, junior, former junior Wimbledon champion at the sky has always felt like the limit for her. So it's it would be great to see her. You know build some momentum off of this. Where are
0: you with Kudermatova, who gets lost in the shuffle as a tier? You know, not quite on the Conteve soccer, same age as them, but obviously hasn't accomplished what they quite have. And yet, you look for Veronica Kudermatova very quietly this season, has worked her way up the rankings. Kudermatova currently at 25, which again for the 25 year old is two off her career high of number 22. At the same time, she's ninth in the points race, it's very early. It's a pretty damn good season. Who she's also top five in hold percentage. Like again, it's streaky, but it's a good streak right now for Kudermatova.
1: She's one of the rare archetypes right now on the on yeah. the WTA tour. I guess it reminds me of like you know late '90s Anna Kornikova, who wins <laughs> Anna a Kornikova
0: lot of- from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Carry on.
1: <laughs> born and raised.
0: <laughs> that's that's um, my di- that's my city. That's where I was <laughs> born and raised. Let's go.
1: I mean, Matova wins almost all the matches that she's supposed to win. Unfortunately, she wins almost none of the matches that she's not supposed to win. I mean, I think there was a streak where she was like, I think, 0-14 against players that she had, um, that were ranked above her. She just wasn't winning those matches. And so that's why, you know, it's it's a weird contrast because a lot of players we see on the WK Tour almost exclusively win matches that you think they're not supposed to win. And that's why we know about them so much more than we know about uh, Veronica Kudomirtova, who is overall very consistent, is undaunted by the ceiling that she seems to have hit. Like she always comes back swinging, makes that Dubai final the year after winning Charleston and having a great start of 2021, making the finals of Abu Dhabi. But until she straight gets a signature result, it's kind of like a beta contavite, to be honest. I mean, it's just sort of that, it's that camp of players who do not have that signature, signature result at a big tournament. Yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at with her. I was sure.
0: probably 15, maybe 16 when I realized why people liked... Like, I thought Kornikova was famous just because she was from our area. Like, I was like, oh, that's why everyone around here knows who she is, because she went pro and she's from our area. And then it was like, you know, the first time you Google her, you're like, oh my God, there was this whole Kornikova sensation. I was like, I just thought she was really like good at tennis and from our area. Like I, She's no why idea. they invented Google. I know, Literally, the <laughs> countdown clock, right? That was the whole thing. And so, I mean, yeah, I just like... I would have been – I wish we had this podcast in the 90s. First of all, th- that Pete and I could have been the eyebrow gang. Like we would have had a good run there together and, uh, yeah, all of these different things. Um, no, I, I I do think for Matova, again, she goes so big on the return of serve. And she is making more returns in play this season than ever before in her career. But she's still bottom 10 amongst top 50 players in break percentage. And it's just – it can be streaky – at the same time, she has reined it in. Like the, She is putting more returns in play. She is making more first serves. And when she can do those things, the power tennis she can play, you know, using her speed to beat you to the spot, the flatness of her ground strokes, it can't be denied. And so uh, she is just, in, again, in a year where everything is open, why not a Matova run to a slam quarterfinal or something like that? I don't know if she can do it seven times in a row, but four, five times, maybe.
1: I mean, I think at this point, I don't think she's made a fourth round yet. of a slam. Yeah, I think exactly. that would even be that would even be a success. And that would be where you'd start to get that sort of hype of how how far can she go? I mean, there's nothing hitchy about her game. She's a really great server. You would think there's nothing really standing in her way. It's just execution at this point. And I guess the good news is, is she's not getting worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's fair. And then again, you know, Putensiva semifinals, just a nightmare to play on the clay. I mean, Kristea, your other semifinalist, knocked out. She continues to be hovering around the top 20 if she's ever going to make it. It's this year. Um, Any other thoughts from Istanbul?
1: Oh, just that it is an even year, and Yulia Potensiva made both of her French Open quarterfinals in an even year. Yeah.
0: That's a, keep, it, that's, keep, keep an eye out there's a cane for you um that's where we'd have some sort of house if we had the soundboard we'd have some sort of housewife gift there as well because that's a classic cane i don't know what quote <laughs> goes there but i'll let you fill in the blank all right last tournament for us to talk about and there's not too much for us to discuss because we covered this a lot last week uh, in terms of what happened week in week out but andre rublev wins the title much like again well see the headline would be to put Djokovic to the side and actually talk about Rublev who quietly outside of his second serve struggles has been better at every part of his game this season. And has you know, I think he's top five in terms of total wins on the year and just quietly going about, you know, again, he's the new Dominic team, right? Where who's playing every week. It's Andre Rublev. Who's making semifinals finals. It's Andre Rublev of these two fifties. Rublev's playing at 500 Rublev's playing it. thousand Rublev's playing it. Um, Do you like that? A, Rublev's the new Dominic team. B, what were your thoughts on... I mean, he worked Djokovic down in the final. Like again, in that third set, Djokovic just didn't have anything left in the tank. And credit to Rublev, who did. Any any notable takeaways from the Rublev experience this past week?
1: I would say it's important because it's part of what we discussed in the Lost podcast was... (laughs) what to take away from Djokovic's wins leading up to that final. He was coming down from coming back from a set down and solving these matches, but they were against, you know, players who worship him in in terms of, you know, a Kachmanovic or a a Lazlojer. I mean, these are players who, you know, playing at home against their hero are coincidentally not closing out these matches that they perhaps should be closing out. So the fact that, Rublev was able to win that third set as decisively as he did. I mean, it was one of those matches where you just felt like, well, Djokovic won the second set. He came back. He's going to steamroll in the third. And the fact that he lost so decisively it may light a fire under Djokovic may make him feel like this is his rock bottom. And he wants to, you know, not replicate that and, you know, maybe squeeze in a training block if at all possible. I mean, I, it's the kind of thing where obviously match fitness is its own beast, but you would think that fitness would have been the easiest thing for him to work on over the last couple of months. I mean, you would expect to maybe to not have the, all of the – mean, all the shots aren't there. Maybe all of the decision-making isn't there. But if he's getting tired, that's, that's a little weird to me. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Well,
0: I would again point out the fact that he's still played fewer than 10 matches like in total this season sure. I know in the press conference he's coming off of a virus and that's what he blamed for his <laughs> physicality. coronavirus yeah <But>, uh, <laughs> your words not mine it's only going to get tougher for him right moving forward and just um you know going to the three out of five set format playing these master's events where the quality of competition is only going to increase at the same time to get calloused you have to take some bumps on the Djokovic side of the equation He took all the bumps I think you'd want to see him take. And again, last year, he started off the clay court season slow. Uh, Again, he didn't win a title in his first two tournaments. He had to play that Belgrade 2 the week before, A, because it was in Serbia. He was never going to miss that event ever. But B, he wanted to get more matches under his belt. And ultimately, we saw his level pick up throughout the week there, carried over to the French Open, where his semifinal against Rafa is probably a top five match in terms of level we've ever seen out of Novak. There is still plenty of time for him to find that top four. At the same time, it was absolutely notable that Andre Rublev Broke him down over the course out of two or three sets. That and Djokovic, at the end of that second set in particular, was notably trying to end points early in the rally because he just didn't have his legs under him. And we hypothesized it about, uh, about it at the start. Even with a month, do we really think Novak Djokovic is going to be the fittest player in the draw? Like with how fit Alcaraz looks, how fit Tsitsipas looks, all of these guys, is Novak going to be able to win on fitness alone? Or does he now need to have his tennis also clicking on all cylinders because the margin of difference between him and the rest of the field has thinned? The young guys all get older and better. He is not as match calloused as he once was. Like that is a that is a question still coming out of Belgrade. And I think everyone gives him the benefit of the doubt,
1: but there is some doubt. I mean, there's a it's fascinating because I think under normal circumstances, he would be looking to peak at Wimbledon. And maybe he still is, but I think there's also such 21 slam mania that, you know, you and that you don't know, perhaps, is he really getting worked up about, you know, peaking at the French Open because he wants to stay in this hunt for, you know, you know, greatest of all time, most France Slam titles. I mean, he, it's very plausible. It certainly seemed a lot more plausible a few weeks ago that Nadal was going to go into Wimbledon with 22 slams and, you know, having to have to make up that deficit, you know, is, is he looking to win the French open, you know, against perhaps a somewhat injured Nadal and tie him up, go into Wimbledon, break that, you know, break that tie at, at a tournament where he's had a lot more success. I don't know where his head's at. I mean, when you're that high up in the clouds, you know the the air is quite thin, but I I would imagine if you're Novak Djokovic, if you're looking maybe for some long term payoff, if you feel like that you have another year or two in the tank to potentially rack rack up more slams, then maybe you don't really care so much about how you perform overall on clay. Obviously you're looking to for positive signs, you're looking for improvement, match toughness, but I don't know if he necessarily should or could be at his peak in time for Paris, and maybe that would, to try to do so recklessly might put him in a worse position heading into Wimbledon.
0: Yeah, uh, all completely fair points, and I will say from a tennis perspective, it got better throughout the course of the week, particularly those first three matches. Now, again, third set, he was out of gas against Rublev, and if you're out of gas, you're just not going to beat an Andre Rublev, who is at the peak of his powers physically, and again, outside of his second serve win percentage, which is still above his career average this season. Um, yeah, the double-fault percentage is a little bit higher than it once was, but break percentage, 28.1. That's 3% above his career average. Hold percentage, 84.6. That's 3% above his career average. He's already banked 23 wins this season. Again, that's a top-five number on tour. He's back up to number eight in the current rankings, top eight in the points race as well, has made finals this year uh, in Marseille where he won the title, Dubai where he won the title, now Belgrade where he's won the title. So 3-0 and in the finals that he's played I don't do, – hmm. well, I don't want to do this debate again right now. I guess what tier do you have? Would you be more or less surprised right now if Andrei Rublev ends his career with a Grand Slam title?
1: Less. I don't know. I've always been pretty big on Rublev, on Medvedev. I feel like Rublev especially, the way he was able to – you know, clock Rafael Nadal last year, at Monte Carlo, I was a big believer in his chances of, at Roland Garros last year. And the fact that it kind of ended so spectacularly was, was disappointing. And he really struggled to recapture that form for the rest of the year since Cincinnati final, um, notwithstanding. So hopefully he does a better job of managing this clay court swing and comes into Paris feeling as fit and fresh as possible, because now he's proven now that he can beat Nadal and Djokovic on clay best of three sets, but on clay and, you know, made the semifinals of Indian Wells has won a lot of matches this year. He's, you know, has as good a shot as any, again, this is what I find so fascinating right now about the men's game is that there really is, it really is anybody's game right now. And there are far fewer excuses. If you don't execute, you know, it's not, you're not, you're no longer playing in an era where Federer and Nadal Djokovic are all in their mid twenties and just winning all the slams. If you don't win the slam right now, you do have to kind of look inward and say, did I do everything I could have done? Did I leave something on the table? Did I not play as well as I could have in that match? And I think that's why we're also seeing a lot of nervier matches. I mean, Monte Carlo was was prime example. Even the matches that Djokovic played through the week, a lot of nervy matches on both sides. And so I think where everyone's kind of feeling the rat race. And so I'm, I'm looking to see... Uh, the Rat King come together in time for Paris.
0: I like it. All right. With that said, last three questions, then I know you got to rock and roll. So last one, rude Zverev competing this week in Munich. Are they this week where Sabalenka was last week in Stuttgart, where it's like, you got to win now or I'm crossing you off the French open list.
1: Ooh. It's tough because rude is coming off of that Miami final where he beat Alexander Zverev and beat him in that third set as well. Um, I think we were certainly expecting rude to already put down at least, you know, a, a quarter semifinal in Monte Carlo and it's, you know, or do really well in, in Barcelona, you know, got had his chances against boost Busta. That doesn't end up happening. Maybe no shame in that loss, but I think we're starting to run out of time for Casper as well. I mean, in terms of whether he can really, um, come into Paris with sufficient head of steam, he still is one of those players like a Kantavite, like a Matova, who has not really proven himself yet. At a slam. So I think you're looking for all the best warm up mojo that you can get. And so if he doesn't get it this week, he still has Madrid and Rome. I think, you know, my personal opinion is that Rude is a better clay court player than Svera, but just a natural, more natural fit on the surface with that forehand. So I'm always going to give him more ample opportunity that maybe if it doesn't happen, there's still Madrid and Rome. But I I would like to see him start picking up momentum yesterday.
0: So the sooner the better. No, I, I would agree with that assessment. Madrid's still down the road, so we're not going to worry about that right now. Uh, Davidovich Fokina, how does he follow up Monte Carlo?
1: By winning madrid (laughs) and my heart yeah
0: i like it all right well with that said dk we talked about the pieces you have coming up on our last podcast i'm immensely grateful you took the time uh to join us once again today for the makeup show and hopefully now all of our listeners feel caught up on everything that has happened over the past week in the tennis world of course we'll keep covering all the action this week on the mini break podcast feed as well we'll get back to covering all the big topics here on the great shot podcast as well we'll look at the college tennis world as postseason. Play arrives. All that content available on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, to follow David on Twitter, DKT to follow all of his work at tennis.com, everything he's doing, which again, if David writes it, you have to be reading it. A shout out, as always, before we wrap today's show to Super Producer Daniel Westoff, back in the building on the ones and twos, and who, as always, has a fenony job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out to our friends at Turna as well. Remember to join the Turner tennis team today contact sales at uniquesports.com. Don't forget to mention we sent you with all of that said. Let's see if you remember David for our fantastic co-host today, David Kane, super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Turn On from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners?
1: To channel Paulie Shore's Pinocchio. Hey, great shot.
0: <laughs> and we will see you all next time. Thank you, as always, David.